an initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. You may be surprised at the way in which my title links Vatican II with humanism. You may have thought that humanism is something inherently atheistic and does not admit of a Christian form. There is indeed a thing called the American Humanist Association, and it is an association of unbelievers. But in fact, there is also a Christian humanism, and many Catholic writers like Jacques Maritain and popes like John Paul II have spoken of this humanism as a particularly important part of the Catholic tradition. Now, for greater precision on Christian humanism, I turn to a seminal essay of the American Catholic theologian John Courtney Murray. You probably already know him as the, by his reputation as the most important American presence at Vatican II. In an essay written before the Council entitled, The Question of Christianity and Human Values, Murray draws a contrast between eschatological humanism on the one hand and incarnational humanism on the other, which is the thing mentioned in my title and the thing I think is central to Vatican II. Now, Murray gives voice to the eschatological humanism in the following way, and I quote, within the earthly city, man is an alien. It is not his home. He does not find his family there. He is no longer even native to it. He has been reborn. At best, he is a pilgrim in its streets, a man in passage, restless to be on the way toward the holy city that is his goal. While he lingers, Almost literally overnight, his attitude is one of waiting and expectancy. The only true human values are, are those which are supernatural and eternal. The works of earth, the objects upon which human energies may be poured out, are the works of time, only valuable because they fill in the time of waiting. The old monk wove a basket one day, the next day he unwove it. The basket itself did not matter, but the weaving and unweaving of it served as a means of spending an interval necessary to the frail human spirit between periods of the contemplation of heavenly things. Only the making of a soul was the true human value. For the rest, what did it matter? Whether one wove baskets or wrought whole civilizations. End of that quote from John Courtney Murray. So the idea is that since people can't spend all their time praying, they needed something to fill in the intervals between prayer times. And so the whole point of human activity other than prayer was simply to fill in these intervals. Now Murray proceeds to contrast this eschatological humanism with what he calls incarnational humanism. And of this he says that the church, now I quote him again, carries on the mission of Christ to save that which perished. And that which perished was not only a soul, but man in his composite unity. 
and the material universe too. The church then is Catholic in her redemptive scope. All men are to be saved. All that is human is to be saved. There is indeed a war upon the flesh, but in order that the body may be dignified. The Christian heart must cultivate a contempt for the world, but cherish diligently reverence for the work of the Creator, who is creator not only of heaven, but of the earth. Therefore, in the perspectives of an incarnational humanism, there is a place for all that is natural, human, terrestrial. The heavens and earth are not destined for an eternal dust heap, but for a transformation. There will be a new heaven and a new earth, and those who knew them once will recognize them. And of that quote from Murray. So you can see that incarnational humanism, uh, for him, has a distinctive this-worldly focus, whereas what he calls eschatological humanism, by contrast, is more otherworldly. Now, let me try to flesh out this basic contrast with three examples. Uh, uh, examples of very different kinds, uh, illustrating three aspects of this contrast between the two humanisms. Here's my first example. In the City of God, Augustine speaks in the eschatological mode when he famously says, and I quote, for as far as this life of mortals is concerned, which is spent and ended in a few days, what does it matter under whose government a dying man lives as long as they who govern do not force him to impiety and iniquity? End of that quote. Augustine seems to be saying that Christians should be accepting of just about any kind of government, however unjust, as long as Christians are not forced to commit acts of impiety by the government. He sets the bar very low. He does not expect much from human rulers. He is willing to put up with a great deal of wickedness from them, all because he feels so strongly his pilgrim status, his being someone who is just passing through. In the perspective of eternity, it just isn't worth the trouble to think through in detail what good government entails and to try to achieve it within human history. We can see the very different perspective of incarnational humanism if we think of Catholic social teaching, that remarkable body of Catholic teaching originating with Leo XIII on how to infuse social and political and even economic life with the spirit of the gospel. According to this social teaching of the church, we should, even though we have here no lasting home, give much thought and prayer and care to the right ordering of human society. Here's another example of the contrast between eschatological and incarnational humanism. You may have heard of the philosophical position called occasionalism. According to this position, fire does not really burn wood, but God acts directly on the wood to burn it, and he does this on the occasion of the appearance of fire. Food does not really nourish the body, but God directly nourishes the body 
on the occasion of the ingestion of food. As for human activity, the occasionalist says that my will does not really move my arm, but God directly moves my arm on the occasion of my willing to move it. God is really the only cause in heaven and on earth. Over against the occasionalists are those who, with St. Thomas Aquinas, insist that creatures have their own causal powers. It is the food itself that nourishes the body, and it is the will itself that moves my limbs. Creaturely causes work together, of course, with the divine causality, <clears throat> but they are not replaced by it. And occasionalism is akin to eschatological humanism. It lets God be all in all in a way that empties the human being of its own proper being and acting. By contrast, it's typical of incarnational humanism to acknowledge in man his own proper being and acting. And one final example of the contrast between the two humanisms. Tertullian speaks in the eschatological vein when he asks rhetorically, what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? Suggesting the answer that it has nothing to do with Jerusalem, that Jerusalem or the church has no use for Greek culture and Greek wisdom. The church has from Christ all the wisdom she needs. But many church fathers spoke in the incarnational vein as, for example, St. Clement of Alexandria, who goes so far as to say that Greek philosophy did much to prepare for the coming of Christ, almost as much as the Hebrew prophets. When we consider how much Augustine owes to Neoplatonism and how much Aquinas owes to Aristotle, it is clear that Athens has a great deal to give to Jerusalem. Of course, this close connection of Athens and Jerusalem was challenged at the time of the Reformation. And again, in our time, when some have called for the de-Hellenization of Christianity, by which they mean that Christianity should recover its original purity by divesting itself from the legacy of Greek philosophy. But in the Catholic tradition, it has always been held that, as Pope Benedict puts it, the encounter, I'm quoting, the encounter between the faith of the Bible and Greek philosophy was truly providential. End of that quote. And Benedict there speaks in the spirit of incarnational humanism. Now, you may be getting the idea of incarnational humanism from these very different examples. But you may be wondering why I speak in my title of a triumph of incarnational humanism at Vatican II. For to judge from my examples of the eschatological incarnational contrast, the incarnational or this worldly humanism has been dominant for a long time before Vatican II. For centuries now, Catholic Christians have been thinking about how to order the political life of human beings. Not many Catholics defend occasionalism anymore. And from the earliest Christian ages, Catholics have been appropriating the treasures of Greek philosophy. What then is new in Vatican II with respect to 
incarnational humanism. So let me turn without further delay to some texts of Vatican II that seem to me to express uh, a, a very strong commitment to incarnational humanism. These texts are all taken from Gaudium et Spes, the pastoral constitution on the church in the modern world, and I'm going to group them under six headings. That's the way to track what follows my six headings. The first aspect of incarnational humanism I call the relative autonomy of created being. Now here I begin with paragraph 36 in Gaudium et Spes, where the council fathers address the concern that religion might compromise, quote, the autonomy of man, of organizations, and of science, end of quote. Instead of rejecting out of hand the appeal to autonomy, the council fathers recognize a legitimate autonomy. They say, using language that I don't think any previous magisterial teaching had used, quote, if by the autonomy of human affairs is meant the gradual discovery, exploitation, and ordering of the laws and values of matter and society, then the demand for autonomy is perfectly in order. By the very nature of creation, the council continues, material being is endowed with its own stability, truth, and excellence, its own order and laws. End of that quote. Clearly, what the council teaches here is the very opposite of the occasionalism just mentioned. But to feel the edge of this conciliar text and to read it so that it more jumps off the page at you, let me share with you a profound reflection of the great Romano Guardini. Some say he was the most important single influence on the young Joseph Ratzinger. Writing in 1939 and expressing just the kind of reflection that prepared the ground in the church for the incarnational humanism of Gaudium et Spes, Guardini said the following provocative things. Quote, medieval man experienced creation so strongly as symbolic that he did not do justice to its own reality. Finite being seemed to him, to medieval man, to be a faint reflection of the absolute, and time seemed to be an insignificant prelude to eternity. And then Guardini went on to say, and uh, note this closely, quote, much as we may admire the grandeur and unity of the medieval worldview. We must not forget that this view contains at every point a kind of religious short circuit. The absolute made so strong an impression that finite being did not come into view in its own proper being. The answers that medieval man gave to questions about the nature of the world were often of a pre-critical kind. And he often gave a mythic 
legendary rendering of the world. End of that quote. Guardini says that the process of stripping the world of its mythic and legendary aspect was in one respect quite positive, for he says it involved a coming of age of mankind in relation to the finite world, a transition from the mind of a child to the mind of an adult. Guardini adds that in the early modern period, and I quote again, finite reality emerged in a new way and revealed its density, its insistence, its meaningfulness, its intrinsic value. Finite being came to consciousness, and so did the seriousness of all created being. End of that quote. Guardini then explains the Christian character of this new sense of the reality of the world. He says, quote, what God creates, he creates altogether, through and through. He releases the creature into its own being, its own standing, its own acting. End of that quote. In other words, we would depreciate God as creator if we were to create, uh, treat creatures as mere symbols of divine things and were to refuse to acknowledge the being of their own, which God vests in creatures. Recall the this-worldliness of incarnational humanism. You can readily see how a certain Christian this-worldliness is at work in the deepened sense of the relative autonomy of created being that was expressed in Gaudium et Spes. So in the lines that I quoted above from Gaudium et Spes, the council fathers are not just stating the obvious, but they give us a deepened theology of creation. Now, of course, even in the perspective of incarnational humanism, creatures remain creatures of God, who remains their creator. And a piety toward the creator remains essential to any humanism called Christian. The church cannot make peace with those who think that finite being completely explains itself and renders superfluous any divine activity. In the turbulent years that immediately followed the council, it certainly often happened that some Catholics recklessly celebrated the total secularization of finite reality and lost their sense of the creator. Under the rubric of things like incarnational humanism, much mischief was done in the post-conciliar church. But clearly, the root of the mischief does not lie in the very idea of incarnational humanism. It would seem that the being of its own, which God gives to each creature, calls forth from each a special gratitude to him as giver, and in this sense paradoxically binds each creature more closely to him. Now, my second aspect of incarnational humanism I call building up the earth. I turn now to one of the most striking expressions of incarnational humanism 
in Gaudi Metzpez, in paragraph 38, we read, quote, constituted Lord by his resurrection and given all authority in heaven and on earth, Christ is now at work in the hearts of men and women by the power of his spirit. Not only does he arouse in them a desire for the world to come, but he quickens, purifies, strengthens the generous aspirations of mankind to make life more humane and to conquer the earth for this purpose. End of that quote. So the work of Christ in our midst is not only otherworldly, it is also thisworldly. He not only prepares souls for eternity, but also quickens our aspirations for an earthly life more worthy of human persons. Recall the words of John Courtney Murray, um, quoted above, all men are to be saved, all that is human is to be saved. So this means that the salvific will of Christ extends to the social and familial and political and cultural life of human beings. We can perhaps understand better this aspect of the Council's humanism if we recall something about man's place in the whole of creation. Now, many Christian thinkers have marveled at the fact that man occupies a unique position in creation existing as he does at the border of matter and spirit. As a composite of matter and spirit, man has a foot in the world of matter and a foot in the world of spirit. Some have seen this boundary position of man as something threatening. And they have usually thought that it is matter that threatens and have heard argue that man needs to protect himself uh, from the seductions of matter by escaping into the spiritual world. These are not the Christian humanists. But other Christian thinkers have seen in our boundary position the glory of man. They say that we human beings, we embodied spirits, have the task of mediating between the world of matter and the world of spirit, of acting so that matter can become spiritualized and spirit can become embodied. They have sometimes said that man occupies a priestly position in creation. He is pontifex, a bridge builder. He is the bridge between matter and spirit. We get a glimpse of man as bridge in Gaudi Metzpez, paragraph 34, where we read that, quote, man was to acknowledge God as maker of all things and relate himself and the totality of creation back to God, end of quote. This understanding of our boundary position is quintessential incarnational humanism. It implies that we may not ignore earthly existence as we await heaven, but that our special role in creation is to make the earth a place where 
matter and spirit interpenetrate. The this worldliness affirmed by Gaudium et Spes is thus tied up with man's special position at the border of matter and spirit. Given our task of mediating between matter and spirit, we have to regard a platonic otherworldliness as a temptation. Now, let's proceed from paragraph 38, just quoted to 39, where the council fathers make a very bold move. They say that our efforts at humanizing our earthly existence will in some way be preserved and brought to perfection in the new heavens and the new earth that we await. It is not just redeemed souls that last in the next world, but even our efforts at building up the earth. So we read the quote, we have been warned, of course, that it profits man nothing if he gains the whole world and loses his soul. Far from diminishing our concern to develop this earth, the expectancy of a new earth should spur us on, for it is here that the body of a new human family grows, foreshadowing in some way the age which is to come." End of the quote. The Council Fathers then add that in the new heavens and the new earth, quote, we will find the fruits of our earthly labors once again cleansed this time from the stain of sin, illuminated and transfigured when Christ presents to his Father an eternal and universal kingdom. End of the quote. It is just as John Courtney Murray said in presenting incarnational humanism quote him here a second time, the heavens and the earth are not destined for an eternal dust heap, but for a transformation. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. And those who knew them once will recognize them for all their newness." And that quote. So you see that a new this-worldly emphasis was explained at Vatican II in terms of the way in which this world foreshadows uh, and anticipates the world to come. Now, I have to take a step back, as I did above, and say that it is possible to remain stuck in an unchristian way in this world. The this-worldly focus of incarnational humanism can easily degenerate into worldliness, pure and simple. And in the decades after the close of the Council, we saw plenty of such worldliness, always wrapping itself in the mantle of Vatican II. In the theology of liberation, for example, there was often so much stress laid on changing bad social and economic structures that one ended up in a position more Marxist than Christian. I find some very balanced formulations of this conciliar idea of building up the earth in the divine office as revised after the council. In the petitions of morning prayer, you often find a petition like this one. Grant us, O Lord, to work together in building up the earthly city even as we seek the heavenly city. 
or like this one. Grant us to work together with you so that all things might be established in Christ and justice and peace might abound on earth. So here we find in such petitions in the office the this worldly focus of incarnational humanism securely situated within the faith of the church. All right, so that's the second uh, aspect of humanism, the building up the earth. Here's the third. I call it the age of the laity. It follows from the logic of incarnational humanism that the lay Christian takes on a special importance. Whereas the priest is entrusted with the sacred mysteries of the liturgy, the lay person is entrusted with this building up of the earth, if I might oversimplify for the sake of making a point. As long as the building up of the earth is not given its due, as long as our humanism is more eschatological than incarnational, the layperson remains, in a way, underoccupied in the church. His life is divided between his secular professional work that lacks any lasting meaning and his sacramental life, which alone has lasting meaning. He runs the risk of becoming a kind of second-class Christian. The first-class Christian seems to be the priest or religiously consecrated person who is completely devoted to the only thing that lasts. And with this, we get dangerously close to the tendency, sometimes found in the preconciliar church, to reserve the call to holiness for priests and religiously consecrated persons and to consign lay people to a minimal Christianity. But when one understands the seriousness of this lay work of building up the earth, of extending the redemption wrought by Christ into all that is human. One sees that lay people are called to the same total commitment of themselves to Christ to which priests and religious are called. Then we arrive at conciliar texts like this, 43. Let lay Christians be proud of the opportunity to carry out their earthly activity in such a way as to integrate human, domestic, professional, scientific, and technical enterprises with religious values under whose supreme direction all things are ordered to the glory of God. End of that quote. You see how the Council's teaching on the role of the laity is embedded. It is embedded in the thing that I have been calling incarnational humanism. Here's a fourth aspect of the incarnational humanism. Uh, I call it man revealed to himself in the light of the Trinity. And I turn here to Gaudi Mitzvah 22 and 24, two passages that John Paul could not quote often enough. At issue is the doctrine of the Trinity, which seems at first to concern God and not man, and therefore seems not to contribute anything to our understanding of man and the meaning of his earthly existence. But the Council Fathers were able to make 
the Trinitarian faith of the church fruitful for our understanding of our human being. They were able to show how this faith, as they said, reveals man to himself and brings to light his most high calling. The key text, I think, is in 24, where we read that the Lord Jesus, speaking of his oneness with his Father, quote, has opened up new horizons closed to human reason by implying that there is a certain parallel between the union existing among the divine persons and the union of the sons of God in truth and love, that is, the union of human beings. This parallel shows that man can fully discover his true self only in a sincere giving of himself. End of quote. In other words, Gaudium et Spes discerns in the Trinitarian faith of the church the key to our human self-understanding. We can see what it means for us to give ourselves in love to one another by listening in on that colloquy of father and son as we have it especially in the Gospel of St. John and getting a glimpse of this self-giving love of father and son to each other. These well-known passages in Gaudium et Spes exemplify the Christian humanism that we're seeking because for the first time they disclose something in the Trinity that is exemplary for our human existence. I must admit uh, on a personal note that in earlier years I was very taken by the radically theocentric character of the Trinity inspired by some sermons of Newman on the mystery of the Trinity. I delighted in the fact that this doctrine of the Trinity was through and through theocentric, not at all anthropocentric. And that earlier understanding of mine, the Trinity lacked any significance for Christian humanism. Now that the teaching of the Council has enabled me to see something anthropocentric as well as theocentric in this doctrine, I can appreciate its connection with Christian humanism. My fifth uh, aspect of incarnational humanism, I call it assimilating non-Christian culture. If we turn now to Gaudium et Spes 44, we will find a very different aspect of incarnational humanism. In this paragraph entitled, What the Church Receives from the Modern World, we read that the church, quote, profits from the experience of past ages, from the progress of the sciences, and from the riches hidden in various cultures through which greater light is thrown on the nature of man and new avenues to truth are opened up. End of that quote. Instead of the church saying that she has within herself everything she needs for her mission, she here declares that there are cultural treasures originating outside of herself that she needs to assimilate. We discern here the issue already mentioned of Athens and Jerusalem. And that brings back into view our issue of incarnational humanism. In the perspective of 
eschatological humanism, the church does not need to assimilate any non-Christian cultural treasures. She just needs to announce her proclamation out of her own ecclesial self-understanding. But in the perspective of incarnational humanism, the church can become herself fully only by assimilating certain non-Christian cultural achievements. Now, to my mind, no one has expressed this vocation to assimilation better than John Henry Newman. He was once in debate with an Anglican theologian named Milman, who was very suspicious of the church assimilating anything from her pagan surroundings. And Newman explains Milman's view like this. The phenomenon admitted on all hands is this, that a great portion of what is generally received as Christian truth is in its rudiments or in its separate parts to be found in heathen philosophies and religions. For instance, the doctrine of the divine word is Platonic. The doctrine of an incarnation is Indian. The doctrine that the divine kingdom is Judaic. A sacerdotal order is Egyptian. The idea of a new birth is Chinese and Eleusinian. Belief in sacramental virtue is Pythagorean. Such is the general nature of the fact before us. Milman argues from it, since these things are in heathenism, therefore they are not Christian. We, on the contrary, prefer to say, these things are in Christianity, therefore they are not only heathen. And then Newman, having presented the position of his adversary, proceeds to give a memorable statement of the incarnational understanding of what non-Christian cultures can contribute to the articulation of Christian revelation. So Newman continues, we prefer to say, and we think that scripture bears us out in saying that from the beginning, the moral governor of the world has scattered the seeds of truth far and wide over its extent, that these have variously taken root and grown up as in the wilderness, wild plants indeed, but living. And hence that, as the inferior animals have tokens of an immaterial principle in them, yet have not souls, so the philosophies and religions of men have their life in certain true ideas, though they are not directly divine. What man is amid the brute creation, such is the church among the schools of the world. And as Adam gave name to the animals about him, so is the church from the first. Look round upon the earth, noting and visiting the doctrines she found there. She began in Chaldea, and then sojourned among the Canaanites, and went down into Egypt, and thence passed into Arabia, till she rested in her own land. Next, she encountered the merchants of Tyre, then she was carried away to Babylon and wandered to the schools of Greece. And wherever she went, she was a living spirit, the mind and voice of the Most High, sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions, claiming to herself what they rightly said, correcting their errors, supplying their defects, 
completing their beginnings, expanding their surmises, and thus gradually by means of them, enlarging the range and refining the sense of her own teaching. So far then, from her creed being of doubtful credit, because it resembles foreign theologies, we even hold that one special way in which providence has imparted divine knowledge to us has been by enabling her to draw and collect it together out of the world, and in this sense, as in others, to suck the milk of the Gentiles. End of that quote. The church then, according to Newman, has never ignored the surrounding non-Christian culture, but on the contrary has sucked its milk. If she refused to do this, she would deprive herself of a certain source of life. Newman professes here that aspect of incarnational humanism that I find in Gaudium et Spes 44 and elsewhere in the Council. Now, of course, same kind of caution I keep registering as I go. Of course, Christianity is not just an eclectic mix of world religions. Uh, Jesus Christ is the God-man, the only mediator between God and man. In Christ, God speaks his final and definitive word to us. The gospel must therefore be preached to every creature. But Newman takes full account of this primacy of Christianity. As you can see in the way in which he compares Christianity among the world religions to man among the subhuman animals. Note too his metaphor of sucking the milk of the Gentiles. When you drink milk, you are not turned into milk. Milk is turned into you. Thus we Christians who are incarnational humanists assimilate non-Christian wisdom so as to become ourselves more properly, so as to come into our own more fully. And now, uh, my final aspect of uh, incarnational humanism, I call it evangelization based on incarnational humanism, the very theme that Father Dominic raised for us at the beginning. In Gaudium et Spes, paragraphs 19 to 21, the Council Fathers address the problem of modern atheism. I want to consider with you for a moment what incarnational humanism can contribute to the Church's encounter with atheism. Recall the main argument advanced by atheists like Nietzsche. They say that religion slanders the earth, meaning that it depreciates human goods, despises the body, looks with a jaundiced eye at any sign of human creativity and human strength, or at the great works of human culture. So these atheists like Nietzsche say that God is affirmed at the expense of human goods. Devotion to God requires that we mortify our interest in human goods and live so for the next world that we don't make much of this one. And so it happens that God appears as, as they say, as a source of heteronomy for us. That is, as a law foreign 
to our deepest human aspirations, a law that does violence to us as soon as we're held to obey it. And the great Guardini, whom I quoted above, thinks that it has sometimes been the fault of Christian teachers that God has been made to appear too much as a threatening other. Now, it seems clear that the best Christian response to this main argument of the atheists is incarnational humanism. Atheists who encounter real incarnational humanists are forced to realize that God does not have to be affirmed at the expense of human flourishing. They are forced to realize that there is a way of venerating God that does not block but rather releases our energies for building up the earth. In paragraph 58 of Gaudium et Spes, the Council Fathers say that the church, quote, takes the spiritual qualities and endowments of every age and nation, and with supernatural riches, it causes them to blossom, as it were, from within. It fortifies, completes, and restores them in Christ. And of that, quote, so if faith in God can be shown to have this fortifying effect on human culture, then the anxiety over heteronomy will be struck at the root. Then the Christian God becomes believable in a new way. Thus, for the new evangelization of which we hear much today, in incarnational humanism is fundamental. If we preach mainly in the spirit of eschatological humanism, then we play right into the atheists' worries about human goods. We confirm their suspicion that God is affirmed at the expense of man. But if we preach in the spirit of Gaudium et Spes, in the spirit of incarnational humanism, we can be heard in a new way. Our proclamation can find a new kind of resonance in the hearts of our contemporaries. We can disarm their main objection to us. Now, of course, atheism is not just an intellectual problem. It's also a matter of the will. Even if we make the best possible presentation of the gospel, there will still be atheists who reject it, who in fact do not want it to be true. The gospel is always more than just the fulfillment of our natural aspirations. It will always give scandal and earn for us the hatred of some. But there are certainly some honest seekers who really think that the Christian God produces harmful heteronomy for man. They need to hear the gospel proclaimed in the spirit of incarnational humanism. Here then, and here I conclude, are the aspects under which, the six aspects under which I've examined uh, this thing I'm calling incarnational humanism. So the relative autonomy of created being, building up the earth, the age of the laity, man revealed to himself in the light of the Trinity, the assimilation of non-Christian culture, and evangelization based on incarnational humanism. 
you hopefully can catch the unity among these six aspects. Now, I thought it might be appropriate to conclude this reflection. Uh, and I assure you, I am concluding now. Um, this reflection on incarnational humanism with something that links it to the Franciscan tradition of this university. Now many of you know that blessed Don Scotus, the great 14th century Franciscan theologian, held the doctrine of the absolute primacy of Christ. And by this he meant, among other things, that the incarnation is not just God's response to our sin. It is not just for the sake of our redemption. Scotus held that God in his original plan of creation had created the world for the God-man and destined it to be subject to him. The Son of God was destined to become man, not just in the order of redemption, but already in the order of creation. This means that the instaurari omnia in Christo, this establishing of all things in Christ, is not just a matter of Christ healing our wounds, but also of him standing at the center of a new creation. It means that he is destined to be present throughout creation in just the way envisioned by incarnational humanism. Thank you. An initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind.